and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Vogelman. My guest today is Eddie Chacon, formerly one half of the popular duo Charles and Eddie, who had the smash hit What I Lied to You back in the 90s. Eddie talks about meeting Charles Pettigrew on that New York subway, just working with him, and he talks about Charles's untimely death back in the early 2000s due to cancer. Eddie, alongside his wife, formed the Polyamorous Affair and put out some fabulous music. Eddie gives me an update about the band. Eddie worked as a very successful photographer for a bunch of years and just got back into music recently, releasing his latest single, Rumors Are Lies. Eddie talks about getting back into music, how he got into music, working with, of all people, Luther Campbell of Two Live Crew fame. Eddie, really nice guy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. So, Eddie, thank you uh, so much for joining me. And uh, first, I want to uh, actually apologize to you because I, not knowing that you were a part of the polyamorous uh, affair, I absolutely loved your music. I, you know, I got hooked by uh, Private Life hearing it on Dexter and not knowing wow. that you were a part of that band with your wife. Um, so once again, I apologize. <laughs> Oh man, I'm just surprised that you know about that band. I thought it was kind of a, a little secret. <laughs> right? No, but that's it, cool. Yeah, it was, that really that makes me very happy to hear that people listen to it and like it. Oh yeah, absolutely.
So I, I know you're you know, promoting your you know, your new song and your new your new upcoming album. But do you have any more plans to do any more stuff with the uh, the band? Um, Polyamorous Affair is no more. My okay. wife decided that she's more interested in wardrobe styling than singing. Oh, ah, okay. So uh, and the wife always great. wins. <laughs> <laughs> happy wife, happy life. Absolutely, I know. <laughs> um, but it's great because uh, when we were doing all the videos for Polyamorous Affair, um, I think the things that she found she liked the best was when she was styling and creating the looks and the and the visual aspect of it. And so it kind of led her in, into a whole career that she never knew that she'd have. And now she's kind of just flourishing in that direction. So that's been a lot of fun to watch. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, yeah, going like way back where, you know, I actually and most people know you from, uh, you know, Charles and Eddie. Um, how did you like first get involved in music and like who, who were some of your influences growing up? Um, I actually started really young. I grew up in Northern California, like Hayward, Oakland, San Francisco area. And um, this is really strange, but I grew up in the neighbor, same neighborhood as Mike Borden from Faith No More and right. Cliff Burton from Metallica. And we were just kids and um, we were kind of like a little garage band. And uh, that was really my first start. And, and uh, you know, who knew at that time that we would all wind up actually doing music our whole life. Right. So what kind of like music were you playing in the garage? Well, those guys were obsessed with um, Black Sabbath. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we were like, we were like heavy metal shredders, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Not, not type of the music you're known for now, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's funny because I had, I'm, I'm the youngest of three and um, I bet a lot of people can relate to this, but one of my brothers was totally into heavy metal. So coming through one wall on the left side of my room was Led Zeppelin and Robin Trower and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And then I had another brother on the other, on, on the right side of the room who was completely into like pop music, you know, like, um, I don't know, stuff from the seventies, like Bette Midler. Right. <laughs> um, so I was getting the, and, and Al Green, he was obsessed with Memphis soul, like Al Green, Marvin Gaye, Sam Cooke, you know, Motown. And um, so, so I was getting this total cross section of heavy metal from one side and, and Motown on the other side, you know. Right. Well, um, yeah. I mean, I guess it's good to have like a good, you know, variety of musical tastes. Yeah, definitely. I didn't know. I, you know, it's that kind of thing. Later on in life, you kind of realize always as it should be. I had no idea that it was serving me in any way, and that I would be utilizing this down the road. You know, just being a little kid growing up. Right. Yeah. So you um like were you know starting up in a solo, a solo artist right you were just trying to like you know kind of find your way in, in the business so how did you actually end up with uh, Luke, luther campbell um that's kind of a strange story i mean initially when i came to la i thought i was going to be a rock and roll kid you know i right. i was playing in little rock and roll bands and new wave bands growing up in san francisco area in the in the late 70s and 80s but by the time i moved to la i was sort of like secretly doing um you know like bedroom demos that were that were very kind of like l green and marvin right. gay and sam cook and um i was being kind of a soul crooner but i wasn't telling my rock and roll friends that i was doing that hmm. um anyways long story short i wound up being a writer at cbs songs and i had a real champion um in a, a vice president there named victoria claire and um she really um she really introduced me to everybody in the in the music business and and that was one of the things that she did is she took me to miami to meet um 
initially a, a very big music manager named Steve Machat, and then Steve Machat was looking for a record deal for me, and he knew uh, Loser Campbell and the Two Live Crew and Skywalker Records because he was working with um, a band that was really big at that time called Ready for the World. Right, yeah. And they were having a big song with that song, Oh, Sheila. Oh, yep, yep. And um, it was actually Melvin. Um, we went together to see um, Ready for the World play in Miami, and it was actually Melvin, the lead singer, that said, I know a record label that I think would be really into what you're doing. And that was my introduction to Luke. Right, and you, you worked on, you were an engineer on what, Nasty As They Want to Be, right? I did wind up working in, a st I mean, it was a very small record label. It was a great experience right. for me. It was kind of like a smaller version of what later on I would find out you know what big record labels are like right um so luke you know he he was basically like stay in miami i'll get you an apartment and a rent a car and you can just work in the studio when we're not working in the studio um and that's how i made my record but when i wasn't working in the studio they were making the record as as nasty as they want to be um which went on to become like you know a huge legendary record and so i just started um i was using the same engineer an engineer named Ron Taylor, and I just started helping Ron out in the off hours. <laughs> so that was when they were making as nasty as they want to be. So it was kind of just like right place at the right time. I just remember um, calling up all my friends back home and going, man, these guys are doing this sound that you're not going to believe. They were calling it Miami bass right. at the time. And it was just super distinctive and it didn't sound like anything that was out at the time. And, I remember they were just blowing up speakers like crazy <laughs> um, <laughs> with that bass, that big, huge 808 bass, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, it just seemed like something was going to happen with it. You know, there's a certain feeling around when people are doing something that's just so kind of, you know, um, psychic jailbreak, you know, um, just flipping it on its ear. And um, that's kind of that's kind of how I felt when they were making that record. And it wasn't really a surprise to me when it kind of exploded the way it did. Yeah, there was a lot of controversy with that. I I, I still have that cassette tape at home, even though oh, I don't, yeah. I, even though I don't have a cassette, cassette player anymore, I still have that cassette tape at home. But yeah. yeah, I think he. I mean, I think he was even on the cover of Time magazine. At, you know, because of the censorship, he he was kind of like the lightning rod for the censorship issue at that time, wasn't he? Yeah, I, I think wasn't it like he? Like, as a result, they put the parental advisory labels on stuff. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, but, but um, yeah. So then, um, that fateful, I guess, uh, subway ride where you met uh, Charles Pettigrew, right? Had that happened after? What happened with Luke, Luke's record came out as nasty as they want to be exploded. Um, it was quite, it was exciting, but discouraging because my record, which was a solo record, was totally overshadowed at the time. Right. Um, and nothing happened with it. So it was almost like back to the drawing board. Um, at around that time, um, this is a very strange story, but at around <laughs> that time, um, on Capitol Records, Lenny Kravitz had a band called The Body. Right. And it was before he became a solo artist. Um, anyways, he met Lisa Bonet and went on to become a solo artist and signed with Virgin Records. And the A&R guy at the label, Capitol Records, called my manager and asked if I wanted to replace Lenny Kravitz as the singer in the body. Oh, wow. <laughs> and um, But I told him no, because I had had a bad experience already on a major label. 
And I thought, well, I can either be in a band where I have no control on a major label or be here in Miami working with a small label where I have all the control. Right. Um, so after that didn't happen for me and it was kind of a fail, I went back to um, um, Los Angeles and um, I had like 500 bucks left and I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I, um, I think I wound up working with the Dust Brothers for about a year, okay. actually. Um, and it was moving very slowly and I was getting kind of discouraged because it was moving so slowly, even though they were so brilliant and amazing. Um, so I went to New York one last time thinking I'm just going to go one last time and give this thing a shot. And if something happens, great. If not, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's not going to happen for me. And, um, yeah, it was in that time that I, I was in New York and that was my trip and that was where I ran into Charles and. And all of that happened, and I wound up getting hooked up with Capitol Records, and that was just, it just happened so fast. Um, yeah, it was incredible at that time, um, because it was really probably, it, I was very much on the verge of giving up at that point. Right. So, so after you, you met Charles, like, how, how long did you guys, like, you know, kind of talk and get to know each other before you decided to, like, start, you know, jamming together, performing? Um, not long at all, because Charles was already signed to Capitol Records, oh, okay. um, but his project was kind of stalled. Right. And uh, and um, they and I came into the project and 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 um, and I immediately started working with um, Josh Deutsch, Charles's A and R person, and and working on Charles, working on what I thought would be Charles's record. So I thought I was working on Charles's record as a songwriter. Okay. Um, and we were working in this studio in Chelsea, and I remember we would write on the tapes, Charles and Eddie, <laughs> um, just because that's literally what it was. It right. was me working with Charles on Charles's record. Um, so I would write songs, a lot of which wound up on Duophonic. Okay. And we would put my voice in the left ear of the headphones and Charles's voice in the right ear. And then I'd have the lyrics up on a music stand and he would come in after lunch and he would hear me in his left ear and him in his right ear. And we would be in the in the booth, you know, listening while he sang his vocals and I would teach him the songs. Um, and, you know, there was just a time where where, you know, when you're listening back, you're kind of listening to both of us. And I think there was just a magical moment where all of us, me, Josh, Charles, and um, Ed Tootin, who was the uh, studio owner and engineer at the time, and this was just demos between two guys for Capitol Records that we didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> and um, so there really was just this kind of like lightning moment in which the music came on and both of our voices were up at the same time, both sometimes singing unison, sometimes kind of intertwined and singing harmony and kind of going in and out of each other's voices. And I think in that moment, that was just kind of the birth of what would become Charles and Eddie. Right. <laughs> yeah. And at the time, to be honest with you, I think I was a little bit even disappointed because I had my sights on a solo career. And once that happened, everybody became so excited about this band that would become mm -hmm. Charles and Eddie. That, that was it for my solo project. Right. I was now going to be part of a duo project. Um, but, you know, I mean, quickly, there was so much excitement and so much support from the record label. And it just seems like the, seemed like the songs and what would become Duophonic was just pouring out of us. Um, and this was all happening probably in a span of about six weeks. Wow. Wow. 
So yeah, because I mean, yeah. I, the, the album is is fantastic. It still holds up to this day. You know, there's, there's more Thank to you. it behind. You know, besides, you know, what I lied to you. Um, did you like actually know that song would just blow up the way it did?
had great company support, and I knew that I had a, I had, um, I had a deep connection to Josh Deutsch, the man that produced the record and signed Charles and Eddie. And he would also go on to own Downtown Records and Record Label, and he would become quite a big guy working with um, Gnarls Barkley and, okay. and a lot of. He would go on to sign a lot of groups, you know, uh, Santel Gold and stuff like that. Right. But this was early on in his career, and we were we were becoming very good friends. Um, so we had a lot of support from the record label, um, and. I remember being in his office and listening down to what we thought was duophonic. And I remember us both saying to each other, we don't have a single. Um, and at that point we just went on this huge journey going through like hundreds of tapes that people would send in of songs, you know, um, prospective songs for any artist that was on Capitol, not just Charles and Eddie, but we got it definitely in our sights that we needed one incredible song um and then a demo came in from these guys mick leeson and peter vale who had written for your eyes only for the james um the james bond soundtrack she needs to yeah yeah and um i think they'd also done a song for eddie money and they'd had success um writing for other people and so their tape kind of stuck out it wasn't just one in the batch and we threw that song on and i think you know i think we knew instantly that wow this is amazing this is a perfect fit for us um, of course, then you have to go in the studio and try it out and see if you can sing it and see if it worked for Charles and I. So there was a lot of that, you know, a few different versions and, and we made a demo of it and, uh, brought in some different people and it just kind of, we kind of just lit it up and it seemed meant to be. Um, and so that's the way that happened. And once we had that song, I mean, the excitement just went from one level to another with the record label. I think they felt like they had a real hit on their hands and you know record labels are very they're very um they're very single oriented right right you always see it portrayed in movies you know you don't have a hit yet yeah. <laughs> right. that kind of thing you know i think everybody knows that from watching movies about the music business yeah absolutely and yeah the song took off no not just in america but worldwide i mean number one like so many different countries yeah um, and I know you guys, you know, performed all those like late night shows and stuff like that. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Any good stories about those? Um, I think I think I think probably the funniest thing that I didn't know, just being an American kid, was that you know you have kind of a Jay Leno and a and a you know like a Seth Meyers and a and whoever's like the big the big late night host. You right. have an equivalent of that in every foreign country around the world. <laughs> yeah kind of operating on the same format and i kind of love that because it was so incredibly nerve-wracking to go on these legendary american shows that you grew up watching but i wouldn't get nervous going on the ones in foreign countries because i didn't know who they were (laughs) yeah (laughs) and i love that so i always felt i actually performed better when i don't know i don't know enough to get nervous you know right yeah you don't know like your family and friends are watching those shows (laughs) exactly exactly it's nerve-wracking when you're performing on a big you know like a big something that your whole family's been watching from the time you were a kid right yeah do you remember where you were the first time you heard it on the radio i actually do i remember um I remember pulling up, I have an old, I have two older brothers and I was going to, uh, to visit my brother and his three kids in Orange County. And when I pulled up in the garage, they all came running out of the house screaming <laughs> and I couldn't even, I couldn't even understand what they were saying. 
but they had um, they had the song on the stereo at the time, you know, 1992, you know, right. with the big speakers. And yeah. <laughs> I remember the station was barely coming in and it was all scratchy and awful sounding, but we were just freaking out that it was on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was the first time. I'll never forget that. Right. That's awesome. Now, do yeah. you, you remember, like, what about the, the, like, the most, like, I guess you can say the weirdest place you heard the song? Um, well, that's, I, I would have to answer that by saying that's still going on today. Like here I am, you know, it's 25 years later and my wife and I will be like in Gelson's grocery store right. and the song will be, you know, or my wife will be at work and I'll just be alone, like shopping at the grocery store <laughs> and I'm standing there by myself in line and, and my song's on the radio in the grocery store. That's really weird. you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How, yeah. How do you react, react to that? You just kind of shake your head and just you know pick, pick the produce, right? <laughs> you know, you're just kind of you're just kind of quietly hearing yourself throughout the whole sound system in, in the grocery store, and you're just there by yourself, standing in line with a bunch of strangers. Right. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing that's re- I think probably the coolest thing, and it just happened to me yesterday, is that my friends from all over the world, they always feel compelled to either send me a video or text me when they hear my song on the radio or in an airport anywhere in the world. (laughs) So I'm always getting these emails, texts, phone calls. And yesterday, one of my best friends sent me a video of him walking through the um, airport in Richmond, Virginia, and what I lied he he was playing in the the airport. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So that's kind of funny. That's a really sweet feeling. Right. But then, like you, um, you guys got involved with the uh, True Romance soundtrack. Great movie, great soundtrack. Uh, Wounded, yeah. Wounded Bird. Uh, how, how did that come about?
stop for five years but I remember we were in um, I think we were traveling through um, Italy because I remember it came in and they said do you want to do it and being like a huge Tarantino fan even at that time because he you know he he'd written the script yeah um, we were like yeah of course we want to do it and we didn't really know what we had to do I remember just like reading a little bit of the script and getting like a brief from them and we didn't get to see anything because it wasn't in the can yet. It wasn't shot yet, I don't think. Um, or maybe it was. I'm not sure. But we didn't get to see it. Um, so we read a few paragraphs about it. I got super inspired. And we flew to Bologna. And me, Charles, and Josh wrote that song in a hotel room in Bologna. Um, I remember we were drinking beers. And um, I think we were up till like 2 in the morning just like working on that tune. And then we flew to another city. And I feel like it was Geneva or something, because we were just flying all over at that time. Right. We went in a studio in a European city that I can't remember, but <laughs> I feel like it was Geneva. And we recorded some basics to it, sent it back to L.A., got a yes. And then I think a week later, we flew back to L.A. and um, and recorded the song. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah it's absolutely great song. Totally. Um now the, the follow-up album, Chocolate Milk, which I, I really enjoy. It's, it's I love the title. It's it's, it's very clever. Um, were you guys kind of like disappointed about the you know the lack of success of it? Um, you know, I think I was very I was I've been asked that question a lot, and I think I was I was disappointed years later. Right. But I wasn't I wasn't disappointed at the time. Okay. Because I came from a really humble background, where in all honesty. I was just so shocked that we were just spending our life traveling around the world. Right. And even though Chocolate Milk wasn't the big hit that Duophonic was, we were still traveling all around the world and our life was so exciting that it didn't feel like I I didn't really think about it until years later that oh wow, that record really kind of it was a fail compared to Duophonic, you know? And also to be honest with you, I think I think that that Wounded Bird and True Romance really insulated us from that. Okay, right. <laughs> because that was such a super cool 
thing to get to be involved in. And then I remember we had a song in Adam's Family Values and we had a song in um, Super, Super Mario, Mario Brothers. Yeah. So, yeah, so we were getting all this, we were getting all these like amazing opportunities that you just thought, how can you be unhappy? It would be ungrateful to be unhappy, you know? Right. Um, so, yeah, but I think many years later, I did think, oh, wow, what a bummer. That was that was nowhere near as successful, you know? Yeah, I, mean, I guess once you make the Super Mario soundtrack, there's only one way you can go, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, uh, when you guys disbanded, you know, as a result of, like, you know, Charles's family, um, did you guys still keep in touch until his death? Charles, um, we did. And what's really sad is that I suppose about probably about 10 months before he passed away, we were really on the phone and sending demos back and forth to each other and very much talking about, let's do another record. It'd be fantastic. And we had kind of come back together and I think we both missed it. We had enough time away. Right. Um, and then the next thing I knew a few months later, I got a phone call from Chris Bronze and he was the one that told me that Charles passed away. Did you even know he was sick? I didn't know. Wow. He was sick, and Tina and Chris told me, um, Tina Weymouth and Chris told me at the funeral that he didn't want me to know. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's too bad. I mean, he was so young. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was so young, and he was, and frankly, you know, he was, he was just, to me, I just held him in the highest regard. He was like a genius, you know, to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. was, it was just like Kidsmic that you guys met. On, on that train it was and i was very you know we were really opposites you know i was like a i was kind of like a self-taught scrapper kid from right. from hayward oakland who started out as a little rock and roller and and he was a very educated um you know um, berkeley school of music grad and his his thing he was really sort of like a jazz a, you know a jazz um aficionado and and so we were very different. I, so he was he was my partner, but in many regards, he was kind of a mentor to me as well. Right, right. Now, um, yeah, you, got, you took you know a little break from music and became a photographer. Um, yeah, how, yeah, yeah. How um, how did you get involved in photography? That was just really an accident, actually. Yeah. I think I was I think at around the time when music was going through its its huge um, sort of. Um, equivalent to the economic downturn where you know people didn't really understand what's going to be the new paradigm for music we're not going to buy cds anymore how do you get music and yeah. i think record companies were freaking out and i think i think the whole music business didn't really know where the revenue stream was going to be in music <laughs> and um i was pretty discouraged at that time because i had made a living in music my whole life it was you know i had my whole identity wrapped up in it and it's really all i knew as far as like skill set um and around that time, one of my best friends sent me a camera, a very nice camera, not just an amateur camera, with a sticky note on it that said, I think you'd be good at this. And I just immediately, um, I just immediately started in on it and I started getting my work published right away. And, um, and what I didn't realize, but everyone else told me were actually like pretty important magazines. And so, um, I don't know, I, I kind of just took it as a sign from the universe that maybe I should just take a break and do this. It seems like in the music business, doors were being slammed in my face, and in the photography business, doors were just flying open. Right. So I kind of just went with it, and and seven years later, here I am, you know? <laughs> Been yeah. Been doing photography for seven years already. It just went by so fast. 
Right. And now the music door opens again. Your latest single, uh, Rumors and Lies. Uh, I really love it. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Now, um, you have uh, working on an album and one of that out. what we made up can't say i feel good about that can't say i feel good about that staying up all night doing anything to blow our minds we were just young and dumb young and dumb we were so bad 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 just didn't give no fucks you were so sad 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 Gave too many fucks. Rumors are lies. Rumors are lies. I I, um, I met with a friend of mine who who owns a pretty cool record company here in LA, and I told him that I was wanting to get back into music, and he knew me pretty well, and he said um, I have somebody that I think would be really great for you to work with. It would be a really great thing for you. I don't know if we can make it happen, but let's try. <laughs> Anyways, he hooked me up with John Carroll Kirby, who produced the last Solange record, and that's what we're doing. I'm making a record with him right now. That's great. A full length. That's great. Now, yeah. you, like you mentioned, but the business is so different now. Like, what what's like the goal for that for that album? I mean, because it's not really album sales because no one really buys albums anymore. Is yeah. just just getting your you know music out there again? Yeah, good question. I mean, the goal for me is um, is um, 
it, it just feels good to be back doing something that is so natural to me and something that I've done my whole life. Um, it feels very, um, it feels um, cathartic right. to be back doing it um, after all these years off. And I guess the goal is, I, I guess, you know, I guess the plus side to where the music business is now is, I mean, you know, very few people are going to get to be Lady Gaga or get to be with like what Charles and Eddie was in 1992. Right. But having said that, a lot of my, there's a lot of niches now and a lot of really cool artists that find their that find their audience and and it can be uh, I think it's cool in that way. Yeah, and I I know like artists are kind of like you know hesitant with the streaming services, but I mean you you discover so much you know great new music or even like old music that you, you haven't heard of yet on, on these sites and i think it just brings a whole new light to artists careers true i'm i'm pretty obsessed with spotify and making yeah. playlists and Me just too. going down the rat i love going down the rabbit hole of spotify and just yeah. finding every crazy amazing new release or you know some kid in the middle of nowhere that's making unbelievable music i'm kind of obsessed with that Right. I, I kind of freaked out last week when it went down for a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know about that. Wow, that would be like the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But Eddie, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Good luck with these, the uh, single. Good luck with the album and continued success. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And a special thanks to Eddie for joining me today. Go check out Rumors or Lies. The single is on all the streaming sites. Also, go back and check out Charles and Eddie. Their first two albums are fantastic. Also, The Polyamorous Affair. A little different type of music compared to Charles and Eddie. Also fantastic. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the first Noel 19 Be sure to like the page or Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes. Check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. And I'm going to give five random reviewers... A chance to win a Reliving My Youth t-shirt, and you can find those shirts on relivingmyyouth.threadless.com. A new episode comes out every Wednesday, sometimes Thursday, and we'll see you next week.